Hey, it's Scott. You know, whether you're a first-time manager or a long-time leader of people, there are certain tips and pieces of advice and guidance that you need along the way that, well, let's face it, you don't always get. A lot of times people get promoted into their first managerial role and there's not much of a training program. They're just expected to function as a good manager because they've been a good individual performer. And when I came across Jim Edwards' book, Say Thank You for Everything, and we're going to have a lovely discussion about this book with Jim in just a minute, I realized that this could actually act as a handbook for people at all stages of their professional development. And one of the things that intrigued me about it is some, just some of the simple things that Jim points out in the book, like repetition when it comes to communication. We need to hear and see things over and over again for the message to stick. In fact, it's the most recent entry in the Timeless and Timely newsletter where I wrote about leaders and translation. Part of the role of a leader, and again, it doesn't matter what level you are at within the organization, but part of the role of the leader, and a big part of it, is translating the vision into action. And you do that with repetition, with communication. We also talk with Jim about the rule of five and the M&M story, which is a fascinating one. And the thing with this book is, I know you're, you're strapped for time. We all are these days, right? And every chapter has a 10-second cheat sheet. So if you don't feel like going through all of the anecdotes that support Jim's stories, you can skip to the back of each chapter and get it summed up in a quick cheat sheet. And I think that's valuable for everyone. So I hope you'll join me in this really important episode as we speak with Jim Edwards. And most importantly, I can't wait for you to hear Jim tell the story about the worst job that he ever had and how it taught him the three most important things about management. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hi, and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. I was once an executive at Ford Motor Company, and now I do leadership and communication consulting and speaking. So I hope you listen to this show on whatever platform you get your podcast. Just make sure you're following along. And of course, subscribe to the Timeless and Timely newsletter if you don't already. There's lots of stuff that pops up there every week that's, well, a little different than what you might get from other leadership newsletters. So I hope you'll take the time to check it out. Jim Edwards is the former editor-in-chief of Insider's News Division and was the founding editor of Business Insider UK. He's also been a managing editor at Adweek and a Knight Badgett Fellow at the Columbia Business School. His work has appeared in Slate, Salon, The Independent, The Nation, 
and on AOL and MTV. He won the Neal Award for Business Journalism in 2005 for a series investigating bribes and kickbacks in the advertising business. Jim Edwards, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you for having me. So, I first of all, I have to admit, uh, when I saw the title of your book, Say Thank You for Everything, I, I initially thought it was a book all about gratitude. And it's not. <laughs> it most clearly is not. What is the book about? Uh, so the full title is Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager, Strategies and Tactics that Get Results. And basically it's aimed at people who are newly promoted, who might be supervising people for the first time. Um, or it's aimed at seasoned leaders, you know, people who have been managing a long time, but perhaps they've gone from... Uh, managing a small team or managing a division they're used to, and they've they've made a big step up into something new uh, and and much bigger. I'm thinking um, it might be useful for like startup CEOs who are uh, or founders of startups who might be um, used to running a small team, and then you know suddenly within a year or two find find themselves trying to supervise dozens or hundreds of people, and they realize it's a very different ballgame. Mm. And, you know, that's interesting because anytime we're in a new situation, whether, you know, it is leading a new company, starting a new entity, we, we tend to feel like there, there are very few people to talk to. It's, it's, a, it's unique to us, therefore it must be unique. And yet, I think what you've done here is found kind of common threads that we all go through at any point in our career. And these are, you know, nuggets that you've managed to pull out that are seemingly universal. So how did you first come to this collective wisdom that you put together? Um, there, were, there were a couple of incidents that happened to me um, personally that made me realize, you know, if I wrote all of this down, maybe it would be useful. <laughs> um, <laughs> The first, the first was uh, around the title. I was, uh, I had just joined Insider over ten years ago, and I was supervising only two people. So it was a little team, and we were all at the same desk, same table. So there was no, there was very little management involved. Um, but we were, we were working on this project that had required us to stay late on a Friday. Um, so it was late at night. Everyone else, almost everyone else, had left the office, and a colleague of mine, Laura, uh, it was about seven or eight o'clock at night. She finished her work or her piece of the project, got up to leave, and as she was heading to the door, I said, oh, one more thing. And she turned around and looked daggers at me, <laughs> thinking that you know, she, she thought she'd made her escape, and I was dragging, dragging her back for more work late on a Friday. And uh, I said, um, you know, thank you for all the work you did this week. It was, uh, oh. I really appreciate it. It was really noticeable, and, you know, we worked really hard, but I think it's going to be worth it. I just wanted to make sure that you realize... Um, that, you know, I noticed the effort you put in and I appreciate the fact that I made you stay late, that kind of thing. And she, her face brightened up immediately. And, you know, she said that you're welcome or whatever, and just left, um, obviously in a much better mood. And there was a guy sitting across for, from me in a different team and he was staring at me. His name was Ellis. And uh, I said, what's your problem, Ellis? And he said, <laughs> he said, I don't think I've ever seen anyone here say thank you before. Wow. Um, and I was like, uh, I, I'm not sure that that was true um, universally, but I, when I was writing the book, I, I thought back on my own career and I've worked with a dozen or more companies. And it is actually very common to not hear your boss say thank you for mm. uh, doing the work you did. And I found it's the easiest, simplest trick that can make you a, a better manager. If you demonstrate to your team, to your uh, workers that you know you actually notice and care and appreciate the shift they put in um, they will uh, they will appreciate that and they will like that a, a lot of time what people want is to be appreciated and noticed and they want their work to be recognized and, and a lot of time managers just assume that the paycheck is that um, and it's not it needs to be overtly said um, so that was kind of the first thing and then the second thing was this email that I sent in about sometime in about 2016. And um, it was actually an email I sent to Alison Chantel, who's now the uh, editor-in-chief of Fortune magazine. She had just been pr uh, promoted to become editor-in-chief of Business Insider. And uh, I was running the, uh, the British uh, Business Insider UK. I was running the London office, basically. 
And, uh, you know, I'd known Alison for a while. And um, when she was promoted, I called her on the phone to say, congratulations. You know, if you need anything from me, please let me know. And she said, I need all the advice I can get, actually, because I'm terrified. Or words to that effect. I'm not sure she literally said she was terrified, but, you know, it was a huge step up because her division was like 100 people or more. And uh, so I went back to my desk and um, I began writing this email, which uh, originally was titled sarcastically 19 pieces of unsolicited advice. Um, And I sent it to her. And um, over the years, whenever I promoted someone or whenever a colleague or a friend of mine got promoted to supervise people for the first time, um, I sent them a copy of this email because the uh, advice in it, I, I found I wasn't changing the advice. Right. The text didn't need to be changed as the years went by. And I thought, uh, and eventually th- th- these 19 things became the sort of the plan for the book, really. Um, the book isn't literally 19 chapters based on this email, <laughs> but, you know, I, this was kind of how I pitched it to the publisher. I said, you know, I have this email. It's a lot of people have seen it internally. It never changes. It always seems to work. Is, can we turn it into a book? And the publisher was like, yeah. That's that's what every author wants to hear, and and you know what? It's probably the the format that every publisher wants to hear too. Yeah, it's there's um, <laughs> it's a nice origin story, you know. Here's a legendary internal email that I yeah. turned into a book. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the chapters are based on stuff that is literally. I mean, I'm looking at the email now, and it's uh, a lot of the chapters are based literally on. Uh, this list that I sent, that I sent Allison um, several years ago. That's amazing. Well, we hear a timeless leadership champion, that kind of thing. So I'm glad you did it. Um, so one of the things that struck me that when you were talking about um, some of the origins of the iterations of the book, you mentioned that you had just two people on your team that you were managing. And I know one of the things that you talk about throughout the book is uh, what you call the rule of five. And it has to do with how many people you have on a team or how many people you manage. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that number is important? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is one of the most difficult things I had to learn. And um, again, going back to your point that you made at the beginning of this podcast, um, most management training or most preparation for management that people get when they're promoted consists of nothing. Um, You are promoted and people say good luck and then you're just expected to do it and you're given no guidance whatsoever. And um, a big mistake to make, in my opinion, is, you know, often you'll be promoted to initially to supervise one or two people maybe or or a small team. And that's actually relatively easy because it's easy to just have a day long conversation with your colleagues and people stay on the same page. But once you go above five people, um, for some reason, it suddenly gets a lot more difficult to communicate with everyone, even if it's just six people. If you try to schedule six people for a meeting so you can get everyone on the same page, you know, someone's going to be out with a client. Someone's going to be out with a source. Someone's going to have childcare issues and can't make it. Someone's going to be off sick. Um, you know, someone will just forget to show up, you know, uh, it's, it's suddenly just getting six people to just meet every week becomes uh, really difficult. Um, and the, the problem compounds and magnifies as you, uh, if your career uh, takes off and you have to supervise dozens of people and then maybe hundreds of people, um, communicating with all these people, keeping them all on the same page and making sure everyone has the same mindset and the same understanding of what the, the mission is in front of them, this becomes really, really difficult. And communicating this properly is, uh, it is a job in itself and you have to go at it systematically and consciously um, and, and proactively. And you have to realize that it is not the same as supervising a small group of less than five people. And the, the reason I'm fascinated by five is that um, a long time ago, um, and I'm going to struggle to remember this guy's name. Um, a guy who was sort of like an agricultural scientist was trying to figure out um, why it was that uh, groups that are larger than five become uh, start to become uh, dysfunctional. Mm. And the uh, reason is, uh, wh- what he did was he, he created this experiment in which he asked 
farmhands on a farm to pull on a rope, uh, and he was measuring how much, uh, you know, how much pull they could exert on they could exert on a rope. And it turned out that in teams of up to about four or five people, the more people you add to the team, um, the more the harder they all try to pull on the rope. Um, however, if you have a team of six people or more than six people pulling on the rope, then each individual person actually starts pulling less. Mm. Um, and this was discovered by, uh, the man's name was Maximilian Ringelmann. He was a French agricultural engineer okay. um, and he turned it into a research paper. But basically as a rule of thumb, the more people you add to a rope pulling team, the less force each team member exerts on the rope. And Ringelmann's theory was, that what is actually happening here is not that people are becoming lazier and putting in more effort because there's more people around them. Um, but it's just that the size of the group becomes socially distracting and the interpersonal communication between the rope pullers becomes more complicated. And this just sort of distracts everybody physically, um, which reduces the team's total effectiveness. Um, and a, a couple of other people, um, Ivan D. Steiner, who was a psychologist at, at UMass and, um, uh, Richard Hackman, who was a psychology professor at Harvard, both they both sort of had this notion that you should never have a team larger than five. Uh, Hackman, I think, banned his students from organizing study groups that had six people or more. Um, and yeah, so this rule of, uh, I call it the rule of five because there's a famous article that has appeared in both, or a famous study that has appeared in both Fortune and Forbes magazines that says 4.6 people is the ideal size of a team, um, which is weird because you can't have 4.6 people, obviously. <laughs> so I just, I was just like, let's just call this the rule of five. Like 4.6 is close as damn to five. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in my personal career, I have seen teams and I've had, you know, friends reflect this back, back at me where uh, if your team becomes successful and you hire more people, if you've got five people or fewer, for some reason, it's easy to manage them. It's like being at a dinner party where everyone can hear everyone else talking. But if you've suddenly got a team of eight, if you've ever been at a dinner party for eight people, you'll know that people at one end of the table have a completely different experience right. of the evening compared to people at the other end of the table because they can't hear each other. And uh, yeah, I mean, they literally can't hear each other or they're having their own separate conversations. Um, and uh, you know, managing a dinner party for eight is a completely different task for a host than managing a, a meal for five people or fewer. Um, so that that was one of the concepts I wanted to get in there um, because I personally experienced that. Uh, and, you know, no one told me that a, a big mistake I made as a manager personally at Insider was trying to supervise, you know, eight, 12, 20 people mm. um, the same way I was supervising five people or fewer. Um, and it took a it took a long time actually for me and the colleagues who were helping me <laughs> to sort of get it into my head that you know you cannot continue to run your piece of the company as if it's just you and uh, you know a few friends sitting at the same table. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that is so critical because you look at your performance with the five or fewer people, and you think, well, I've done this. There's no reason why I can't do it with two or three or five more people. It's just it you know, logically, you just kind of make that extension. But in actuality, I think the point that you make there is about how you're able to develop and maintain relationships with each of these people. And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, maintaining the relationships and maintaining the communication and uh, realizing that your job as a manager is a completely different job from the old job you had um, whatever that was in the company. So I was in the news business. I was a journalist, right? Mm -hmm. in my, my day, even as an editor, um, supervising one or two people, my day would be spent on the phone with sources or taking people to lunch and trying to get them to tell me information. And, um, you know, I, th I mean, actually, um, Scott, I have a memory that I tried to interview you once, you know, <laughs> you know, I would go to conferences to see you speak, that, that kind of thing. Um, as a manager though, you're not doing any of that. I mean, you might be doing a, a little bit of that, but really you're just organizing and supervising other people's work and you're, you're not doing any of that at all. Yeah. And that job being their manager, is a it's a new job. It's a completely different job. It requires a completely different set of skills. Um, 
and you can't uh, walk around pretending that you're still doing the old job. Right. Um, and that is, again, that is not obvious. I mean, it kind of feels obvious now that I've said it out loud, but when it <laughs> happens to you personally, it is, it is not at all obvious. Um, and the mistake that many companies make is assuming that they often promote the person from their workforce who is best at the job, you know, and they say, you were really, let's say it's car sales. And they say, you know, you're really good at selling cars. Why don't you manage the whole team? Why don't you manage the whole group? Right. And we'll just leverage your skills and you can, de you can delegate downwards and maybe everyone else will somehow um, be able to perform like you because you'll be telling them how to sell cars. And managing a large team of car salespeople is completely different from selling cars on the forecourt of a lot, right? Um, and th I think the, the best way to think about this is, uh, you know, my favorite football team is Liverpool FC, uh, the, obviously the soccer team in the Premier League. And they have this striker called uh, Mohamed Salah, who's like the top scorer of goals in the English Premier League. If Liverpool was an ordinary company, what would happen is that the, um, the CEO of Liverpool would go to Mo Salah and say, you know what, you're, a, you're the top scorer of goals in the whole league. You're fantastic. How about we put you in charge of the whole of Liverpool FC? <laughs> and, you know, maybe the, the, everybody else in the stadium can benefit from your advice and uh, leverage your skills and we'll just get an average increase in everybody's performance because of that. Of course, this is, that is ridiculous, right? You absolutely do not want to take Mo Salah off the field. In fact, what you want are specialists who are good at managing a stadium and who are good at managing a whole team. Um, but, you know, in, in business and certainly in the media, you take your best reporter and you make her an editor. And in, in sales, I'm guessing it's, it's very, very similar. You take your best salesperson and you make them head of sales and now they're managing people and not really selling things. Yeah, you know, when you put it like that, it, it does sound blatantly obvious how ridiculous that is, but... Yet we we still do it, <laughs> and it it yep. is it's one of those vexing things in management uh, that I still don't understand how it's always the top individual performer who simply gets promoted into management rather than looking across your team and saying, well, who's the best collaborator? Who's the best communicator on our team? That's the type of person we want to promote into a leadership role. Yeah, very often that is true. I mean, it's. I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, obviously. Yeah. Um, you do want people in management who have worked on the shop floor, who have been on the front line, who, who you know, who, um, uh, I mean, I honestly, one of the things I like to do is to hire people who have somewhere in, on their resume who have waited tables or tended bar or worked in a factory or something like that. Because sure. they know what it's like to be on the very bottom rung. Um, you know, the, the people, managers need to have knowledge of how the company works and what the reality of it, of it is. Um, you are right, though. The, the best managers are people who are just really good at communicating, people who like teaching people, people who like mm. educating and encouraging people um, and passing on useful skills, stuff like that. Um, but the, in my experience, at most companies, where, you know, they do promote the best person. And then they don't give that person any advice or training on management they just hope that they that they will be good and even if they do management training i always say there's two types of management training at, in 99 percent of companies there's the first type of management training where you do get some management training and it's really boring and it's really bad and uh, everyone hates it and there's usually like a seminar with a role-playing game in it yeah um <laughs> if you've ever been on an internal management training course you'll know exactly what that's like and they're just that they're often just terrible and i don't really understand why management training is so terrible but it often it just is and then the second type is zero training of any kind whatsoever and the, the training consists entirely of people looking at bad bosses and going if i ever get promoted i'm never going to behave like right that. right <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of power in the negative, but at the same time, you still need to fill that gap as to, okay, we know what not to do, but here's here's some tools and uh, examples of what to do instead. Yeah. So, uh, which leads me to, I think, one of the most intriguing chapter titles in your book. And, and I should mention for folks that are interested in the book, it's divided into four sections. One, you talk about leadership, another about productivity, a third about people, and the last one is about decisions. And the lead chapter in section four 
It's titled, The Worst Job I Ever Had Taught Me the Three Most Important Things to Know About Management. So, Jim, I have to know, what, what was this worst job and what are the three things that you learned? So the worst job I ever had uh, was actually the first job I ever had. I was working in a cardboard box factory and uh, I drove a forklift truck to move uh, pallets of cardboard boxes. Um, they were, the boxes are flattened and piled up and sort of bounded together. So each like giant square of cardboard boxes, boxes weighs about a ton. And uh, we also delivered glue and chemicals to people. Um, and it was minimum wage. I think I earned three pounds an hour. And uh, the factory was, it was a sort of giant warehouse. The doors were open because trucks were coming in the whole time with waste cardboard, which we had to sort of reclaim and turn into usable cardboard boxes. Um, and this is in the north of England where it's uh, very often cold and rainy. And it, it turns out, particularly in the winter, I discovered that cardboard has to be kept dry, but it does not have to be kept warm. So in the winter, you go to work wearing boots and a scarf and gloves and your winter coat. Um, you know, they really didn't care. The weather out, outside was the weather inside, basically. You're, you're really um, selling it here. I yeah. And <laughs> I was also a truck driver, right? Um, I delivered... Uh, I delivered the boxes to our customers in a, it wasn't quite a heavy goods vehicle, but it was the largest truck you can drive without the heavy goods vehicle license. Um, and I was a really terrible truck driver. I, I damaged that truck nearly every time I took it out. Um, and uh, it was, there was a very, it was a very small number of people working in the warehouse and we were all there because basically we were desperate. You know, I was basically unemployed and I, it was the only job I could get at the time. And um, I remember a lot of the other people I was working with, I didn't remember this at the time. I didn't sort of strike me at the time, but looking back, I realized that this is what was happening, that the work was so terrible and the pay was so terrible. That the people at the box factory were only there because they had no other choices. Um, and I remember one guy, he was, um, his name was uh, Paul. He was actually really nice, but he was there because he'd been in prison, you know, and he couldn't work anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it was that kind of factory. Uh, and the guy who, who ran it was just, uh, you know, just one of the worst managers I've ever encountered. Um, and, uh, he made nothing of the place and it was, it was literally just, you know, show up, show up, do your shift, take your pay packet and go home. Uh, it was, it was meaningless soul destroying work. Um, and it just represented basically everything that is bad about work. Uh, yeah, so that's what that's what the job that's what the, my first job was like. My goodness, um, and it ended up with you covered in glue at one point, being hosed down, which was yeah. <laughs> I can tell the glue story if you like. No, that's okay. I, let's just leave that to people's imagination. Uh, given all of the setup there, you can kind of see uh, where that was going. But um, talk a little bit about uh, the three most important things in management as uh, you connect with in this uh, in this particular chapter. Okay, so. I, in my career, I have found that basically managers have to make three different types of decisions and that all of management can be divided into these three uh, themes. Or, and basically they are decision types because as a manager at base, your job is to make decisions for people. And um, they are, the names of the three categories are decisions of principle, decisions of strategy and decisions of tactics. And these are decisions that are, um, so decisions of principle are the most important type of decisions you're going to make. Um, these are the kind of things that affect the core of the whole company. Like what does your brand or your company really stand for? What are you willing to, to not ever compromise on? What are you willing to, what are you willing to lose money on basically? Mm. Uh, because, because you believe in it, uh, because you're just not going to compromise this vision. Um, and principle is about the whole organizing uh, narrative of the whole of the whole company um, and you should know what that is and uh, your people should know what that is and then there's decisions of strategy are very very important decisions and typically decisions of strategy are things like should we launch a new product into a new category or not and these are decisions that can make or break companies and if you get a strategy decision wrong you can 
bankrupt your company. If, so, so they often feel as important as uh, a decision of principle, but um, they come in different shapes of sizes. It is obviously possible to launch a new product and for the product to not be popular and for you be able to, to be able to roll it back without too much damage. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's about strategy decisions are kind of like, what kind of business are we going to be in and how are we going to pursue it? They're, they're pretty big decisions. I, at one point in the book, I say, basically, these are decisions that are going to cost you a lot of money. And if they go wrong, it's highly likely that people will get fired. With decisions of principle, um, the whole company is at stake, like the soul of the whole company is at stake. And then the third category, the most trivial category, is, is about tactics. And tactics is basically about everything else from something like, should you add one more salesperson to the team? Um, this is a good example because if you already have a team of salespeople and they're already selling, you can you know, make a judgment or an assessment yourself whether adding one person would improve that performance or not. Um, you're not getting into a new type of business, you're just finding a way to improve an existing piece of business. Or, you know, something even more trivial, like, um, should you, uh, should you expand the parking lot outside the company headquarters or uh, an example I give in the book is, um, about, uh, there's a tactic I used for starting meetings on time, which is the meeting starts, starts on time, even if people are late and, you know, it's okay to be late, but the meeting is not going to start again because you're late. You just have to, uh, it just, it just starts on time. Right. right? Um, and once you get the message across to everyone in your team or, or division that the meeting will start at four o'clock it will not start at 10 past four if everyone turns up late um pretty soon it turns out that first of all people will show up to the meeting on time and second of all if a few people are late actually it doesn't really matter you know companies do not go bankrupt because occasionally someone is late to a meeting so yeah uh and in my experience and i'm happy to be challenged on this but almost all management decisions fit one of these three boxes principle, strategy, or tactic. And uh, so recognizing which type, of your which type of decision you are making at the time you are making it turns out to be really, really important. And sometimes, I mean, usually it's easy, but sometimes a decision of principle comes disguised as, you know, a tactic or a strategy. And if you treat it like a strategy or a tactic, you can really end up paying for it later basically. Yeah. You know, as an example of one um, business decision, a tactic that has been in the news over the last week or two is uh, Goldman Sachs deciding to no longer offer free coffee. Now, in the big <laughs> scheme of things, is it not a huge decision? It's not going to affect their bottom line. I don't even know if free coffee was affecting their bottom line to begin with, but it sends a message. And, and whatever that message is that they wish to convey, um, it is different than what it used to be. You know, they are perhaps approaching things in a different way or thinking about morale in a different way or thinking about productivity in a different way. And this is simply an indicator along those lines. That's a, just a tactic. Yeah. That is a really odd decision, actually. It is. Well, yeah. it's, especially <laughs> when you look at, you know, the Silicon Valley giants that choose to do free food and, at all of their campuses for all of their employees um, as, yeah. as a way of literally saying thank you to their employees for spending all of their valuable time there. Uh, right. The investment banks, well, uh, they don't play the gratitude game, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the Silicon Valley example is, is interesting because, first of all, Workers do like it if they can, if there's a really good cafeteria or if there's really good free coffee. <laughs> and, you know, typically at these tech startups and certainly a business insider on Friday, we would have beer in the fridge. Right? Hey, there you go. Um, yeah, and so people did like the free little perks. And I, I do remember the day at Insider when the former president of the company, Julie Hansen, decided we had free food in the kitchen, snacks for people. Um, but she decided she was going to put the whole company on a health kick. So she got rid of the peanut M&Ms. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's protein. I was like, Come Whoa. on. I, <laughs> I was like, jeez. I ate a handful of those things every day. I really missed them. Um, that was... <laughs> <laughs> but the, the other thing is in Manhattan, and, uh, you know, it's getting this, this way in London too. If, if you don't provide free coffee and your office is on the 36th floor, then 
your workers have to go outside to Starbucks to get that coffee. Yeah. And the journey in the elevator down from 36 floors down to the street and then two blocks away to the nearest Starbucks, you're talking 25 minutes now. Yeah. You know, so you're, a... gonna, you're really going to lose people. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs has a massive tower in Jersey City. It's, a lot, it's the tallest building in, uh, in New Jersey. Um, yeah, it, they're going to lose a lot of worker minutes there. I, I, it's a very odd economy. It is. It is odd, and and I don't know what message they're looking to send there. But again, it, you know, the, all of the focus is now on this tactic versus uh, the example that uh, I just think is lovely that you used in your book regarding principle was Apple versus the FBI, and. Here there was a, a case where the FBI wanted access to the phone of a terrorist. They wanted Apple to, to help them unlock it. And Apple's take was, no, we're not going to help. And, and we don't care if national security is at risk. Our core principle is we do not, uh, we do not broach uh, security and privacy of our customers. And if we do it for you, who's to say somebody can't take that software and go do it for somebody else? And what initially turned out to be a PR disaster turned out to be a huge PR boom for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in hindsight, that was an extraordinary stand for Apple to take. And I, I don't think people realized how important or how difficult that must have been for them at the time because they were being criticized by, you know, the U.S. Attorney General. And they were, protect they were literally protecting the privacy of a terrorist who had murdered people. And they were saying, no, we're not going to help the FBI. We are not going to create a piece of software to open up that phone. Because if we do that, uh, their argument was, it will immediately be copied and hacked. And, and then it will be used by just anybody, you know, the Russians, the mafia, whoever. And nobody's iPhone will ever be secure again. So we can just, we can just never, never do this. And they took an absolute beating in the press. Um, Bob Barr, the, for, the former U.S. Attorney General, um, berated them repeatedly uh, for not helping the FBI. Um, and they didn't cave. They just didn't cave. Um, and when you fast forward a few years, uh, if you think about the top tech companies, I'm thinking Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon, maybe, which of those companies do you associate with the gold standard of privacy? Like if you want privacy, if you don't want your data all over the internet, if you want your communications with your loved ones to be private and secure and safe and encrypted, which of those companies would you choose to trust with your data? The, the answer is Apple. Yeah. And it's because they've really thought about it and they staked the entire rep reputation of the company on it. Yeah, and I mean, they've, they've doubled down on it uh, with updates over the last year with the do not track, you know, ask apps not to track you across the web. And whether that is foolproof or not, uh, it, it, that's another thing. But at least they're, they're trying and they're doing something consistent with that principle that they, uh, that they put out there. Yeah, and um, that uh, anti-tracking stuff um, is also a competitive advantage for them, right? Because yes. it, it fouls up uh, Facebook's advertising business and it, it doesn't help uh, Google's advertising business. And now cookies are going away. Um, th these are all sort of dominoes that topple, topple into each other. So uh, what I'm saying about principle is that principle doesn't always have to be sort of very lofty and ethical and high-minded. It can actually be about what is what is the fundamental basis of our business yeah. and for apple one of the fundamental bases is privacy but it also provides this competitive advantage by um fouling up the businesses of these competing companies um, another example a simpler example i give is um you know the, there are two airlines ryanair and british airways mm. and they're run on completely different principles ryanair is about short cheap flights in the same plane every time and british airways is about long-haul flights where they offer people uh, expensive business class and luxuries. And they're also flying many different types of planes for many different types of routes. Um, and the result is, uh, so they run along two different principles, basically. Ryanair is effective and cheap, and British Airways is long haul and premium pricing. And the result is that even though they're both airlines, they're nominally in the same business, they don't really compete. Right. They barely compete at all. Though it's 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 quite rare to find Ryanair and BA offering competing tickets on the same route, or relatively rare as a percentage of their entire business. Um, and having that kind of differentiating principle, so so it can just be about um, 
you know, the mechanics of the commerce of your business. But people don't realize um, how effective that can be if you get that kind of principle right. Ryanair flies more routes than any other airline on the planet. And it basically only operates in Europe. It doesn't, it doesn't fly a single transatlantic flight. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, so it's huge. And people don't, people don't realize how effective Ryanair has been do, doing that one simple thing. They, they basically made a simple decision of principle. You know, we're only going to do short hops and we'll do them in the same plane. And none of our flights will last longer than three hours. And that will be the entirety of the business. And, and now they do more routes than anyone else. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, the power of focus uh, when you, you know, when you really center your strategy or your principles around one particular thing. It's a lot easier to, uh, to execute. Well, one of the things uh, I wanted to land on here um, under the people section, and I think this is so important. You talked about the notion of managing up. And we all have to manage up, no matter what level we are uh, in the organization, even a CEO. I mean, they're managing the board. Um, and in our personal lives, you know, we, we have relationships with people, and there are uh, certain ebbs and flows, gives and takes of communication. We need to learn how to, um, to manage up. And part of how you expounded upon that was, um, and I'm going to reference another number here, you reference level four behavior. Uh, can you take us through these four levels and how that uh, relates to addressing problems that come up as you're trying yeah. to manage up? Sure. So I first uh, learned about level four behavior from a guy called John Hegerston, who uh, is the vice president for strategy at Insider's Intelligence Unit. And he, he wrote an article about it. And I, I read this and I was like, Oh wow! This is this is actually completely true. This is great, and it was a very popular article internally at the at the company. Um, and he was trying to describe the, the sort of the four types of employees you might encounter um, if you are trying to make a decision about who to promote, basically. And um, what you want to do is you want to promote the people who are operating at level four, not the people who are operating at level one. And there's sort of a level one employee is basically always asking, I have a problem, what should I do? You know, and typically you get this from new employees or people uh, at the beginning of their careers, they're sort of entry level employees who are just brand new to the business and don't know what's going on. And so every day they have to ask, you know, what should I do? What should I do? What, how do I solve this problem? What do you want me to do? And, and this is fine if you are brand new to the company and an entry level employee, but you can't, you know, if, you, if you've got a member on your team who's been at the company for years and years and years, and every day they're like, okay, what do you want me to do? Um, you know, this is not someone you want to promote, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, level two is when you have a team member who's, who basically says, we have a problem and here are some potential solutions, right? So this is someone who clearly has some understanding of the business and they're trying to pre present their managers with uh, solutions to be with potential solutions. Um, so they're thinking ahead, right? And they're, they're thinking a little bit like their managers and they're trying to help their managers make a decision so that they can get this problem solved as quickly as possible. So level two is pretty good. Level three is when you have a member of staff who is uh, so good at their job and so trustworthy that they can come to you as the boss and say, this problem came up, these were my options, I chose to do this and here's why I chose to solve the problem this way. And this problem is now handled and has gone away, right? So this is someone who um, has almost taken a bit of a risk because they have assumed that you, <laughs> that their boss will agree with their decision, but they have basically <laughs> solved the problem before it got onto their boss's radar. And solving a problem before it gets onto your boss's radar is actually an enormously useful thing. And it's the kind of thing that when you, the manager, look around and, and you think, okay, who's going to be promoted? What you want is the person who is like solving problems for you all the time. Mm. Um, and it's handled is, you know, this is music to your ears if you're a manager. And then level four is like when you say, is, is when the employee is sort of anticipating problems that are going to come up in the future. They have not yet happened, um, but they are plotting strategy for their bosses. And they're saying, you know, it looks like we're going to have this problem. Here are some options that you might choose to solve it. They're predicting the manager's needs. Um, and, and they're basically just sort of operating at the next level. 
basically. In other, in other words, their knowledge and understanding of the business is they're already good enough probably to be uh, running a team themselves because they, they are thinking like their boss um, and they are anticipating and heading off problems basically before they happen. That's music to any leader's ears, really. And, and that's, that's what makes the difference is being able to think outside of your own self, out of your own sphere and think about others around you. Um, and that's, that's how you know you've got great potential leaders in front of you. Yeah, yeah. And you, I mean, I think we've all, anyone who's been at work ever at any kind of work will have experienced this. There'll be someone on your team who is just like really productive, but just like solving problems without being asked the whole time. Right. Mm, yeah. And then there's someone else on the team who's just like constantly coming to you and going, I need your help. I need your help. I need your help. Can you tell me what to do about this. And in the worst case scenario, and I've experienced this a few times, sometimes you'll have people on your team where they are sort of so incompetent and so bad at their job and they need so much help that actually they're creating work. They're creating yeah. more work for other people than they are solving. <laughs> and when you finally get rid of them, even though you, like you're a person down on your team, for some reason it gets easier to run the business. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the real test of a bad employee. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, it affects morale, it affects productivity, lots of different things there. Yeah. Uh, the, well, morale, the morale thing is interesting because often it's very difficult to, it, for you as the manager, it's often very difficult to fire someone because it's, uh, no, obviously no one likes being fired, but there's a sort of a cliche or a stereotype around bosses that, you know, people love to, you know, say, ah, oh, I hate you. You're fired. Get out. You know, the sort of Donald Trump thing, you know, you're fired. Um, <laughs> The reality is that generally people hate getting rid of uh, members of staff. It's, it's often a long and difficult process, and it's very fraught emotionally and tense. It's really stressful, even for the, you know, the bosses and the management who have to do it. Um, and it's more common, in my experience, for people to let the bad employee sit there and like drag it out yeah. over days and weeks and months the decision is inevitable. Everyone knows it's going to happen at some time, but it just takes so long. And what, and what is happening while that is dragging out is that this person is bringing down the morale of everyone else on the team. That's right. Um, and everyone knows, and, and, it's, and it's unfair, right? Because you, the boss, are being unfair because this person is not doing the work. This person is showing up late. This person is screwing things up for everyone else. They are creating work for everyone else. Everyone else on the team knows this. You as the boss are not being fair to the other members of the team because the, you, you are letting this idiot get away, get away with it, right? Right. Um, and, and you can really kill morale like that. Yeah. And, and really, you think you're, you're, trying, you're saving yourself or saving the, the individual who's underperforming the angst of going through this when, in fact, uh, the most humane and empathetic thing you could do for the entire team is to have that hard, hard conversation and uh, separate that person and move on. Yeah. And uh, so I want to be very clear about this. It's, um, I'm not one of these people who's ever going to say firing people is great. And, uh, you know, when, when you are fired, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. That's, um, that's not true. Um, but I have been fired uh, at least twice in my life. Um, it was not the best thing that ever happened to me. But what it definitely did do was it got me out of a situation where I clearly either wasn't succeeding or the company wasn't succeeding. Um, and it forced me into something new and different and better. Yeah. And there is absolutely no point in in if you are the failing person, there is no point in staying at your job where you are failing every day. Your colleagues can see you failing. Your customers can see you failing. Your managers can see you failing. Why do you want to stay at this job where you are plainly failing? This, is, this cannot be good for you. you know, if, and if you are not willing to quit, um, then don't be surprised if you, if you get fired. But also, you being let go, it will ultimately be good for you. Like it will force you to find something else to do where you will be successful, where you will be better, where you will, you know, want to show up to work on time and where you will um, want to want to work a little bit harder and get more creative satisfaction out of what you do. Um, yeah. That is it is a fact of life. And I think people are afraid to say it 
um, because you don't want to sound like, you know, oh, firing people is great. Everyone should be fired. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it is, yeah. it's firing people is bad and it's financially and emotionally, it takes a real toll on people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're failing at work, um, not being fired is not good for you. Right. Right. Well, uh, your your initial email of uh, these nineteen unsolicited bits of advice, uh, you know, you've expanded upon that to uh, create this entire book. Do you think this is the final word on things, or are you are you collecting other uh, secrets of being a great manager as you're going along? And will there be a, an updated edition of the book at some point? <laughs> um, so, what has happened since I've written the book is that um, people are coming up to me with anecdotes about their bosses and managers <laughs> that, are, that are even funnier and even worse <laughs> than the ones in the book. And so, uh, so if my publisher lets me write a sequel, I think I'm going to... Um, uh, what I'd like to do is, is write a sequel called something like um, The Big Book of Really Bad Management, where I just collect like the funniest, most disastrous examples of really terrible managers and try to construct that into a... A sort of course that you can use to yeah. not be like that and to do the opposite and to do the opposite. Hey, I'll give you a bit of free branding advice on it. Call it not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> Just put NSFW across the thing. People will buy that in droves. <laughs> well, this book is Say Thank You for Everything, The Secrets of Being a Great Manager, Strategies and Tactics that Get Results by Jim Edwards. Jim, uh, obviously people can buy this wherever books are sold, but where else might they go to find out more about you or to connect with you? Um, so I'm on Twitter at, at Jim underscore Edwards. Um, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Instagram at, at Jim Edwards123. Um, I mean, if you Google Jim Edwards, say thank you for everything, uh, or Jim Edwards Insider, you can you can find me. I'm 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 not hard to find, to be honest. And I'm happy. I should say to your listeners, um, you know, I I'm happy to respond to emails and DMs too. Um, sometimes people don't, uh, but I like to. Excellent. Well, we will put links to all of those in the show notes to the episode here. Um, Jim, I would be remiss if I did not say. Thank you for being here on Timeless Leadership. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Leading people is no easy task. When we think about our own experiences of being managed, it should inspire us to consider the many ways to apply principles, strategies, and tactics to this essential work. And we should say thank you to everyone. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you, our leader.